Hi, I'm Janet Mock, and this is Never Before. In these chaotic-ass times, you need to gather around a table with your closest friends, discuss your faves and problematic faves, read someone to filth, and laugh. My guest today made that her entire career. Crystal West is one half of my favorite podcast, The Read, which launched in 2013. The hit show's premise is simple. Crystal and her friend Kid Fury, who she met on Twitter, go into a studio and talk. They talk about their favorite things, like Beyonce. They applaud Black excellence, like Serena Williams slaying the world. They take listeners' questions about everything from homophobic family members to messing with fuckboys. They choose a person or topic that deserves to be cursed the fuck out, and it's every damn thing. Crystal says she didn't know the show would be a hit because she didn't think Black people listen to podcasts. Well, turns out they do. After over 200 episodes and sold out live shows all over the world, The Reed showed us, if you build it, and it's lit, they will come. Crystal grew up in Oklahoma and makes it clear that this country girl didn't have dreams of pursuing entertainment. However, fans have embraced her searing intersectional outlook, unapologetic truth-telling, and black girl brilliance. Oh, and she has the best goddamn laugh in recorded history. No lie. Being in front of a mic and making sure she is heard is just her destiny, child. So today, Crystal and I discuss her roots as a smarty pants outspoken queer black girl, how she slayed the podcast scene, and her most formative pop culture moments. And duh, we discuss Beyonce. Oh my God, you're here! Oh girl, I'm here, yay, hi! I'm so excited. Oh, I can't wait. (laughs) How would your parents describe young Crystal? Lord God. Uh, probably a lot like adult Crystal, except, you know, much less swearing. But (laughs) (laughs) I was um, a nerd. I was, well, not a nerd, but Mm -hmm. I loved to read uh, so much. My mother taught me to read when I was three. And every summer, you know, everybody else was signing up for, you know, sports and painting or whatever the hell. And I was like, get me a library card Mm. and take me twice a week (laughs) so Mm. that I can just read, you know? Didn't you kind of feel grown with a library card? I remember like when I first got my library card. You couldn't tell me shit. It might as well have been a driver's license. Like, I'm here to check out books. Here's my whole stack. Yes, I have a stack. And and at a certain point, my mother was like, you can just read whatever you want. So, Mm. you know, I was 12 years old checking out everything Stephen King wrote. (laughs) What? Oh, yeah. I had a summer where I read just like nothing but Stephen King novels. Oh, it was insane. I was like... I am not old enough to read this, but I loved it. I loved it. Was it the the, the scary feeling? Is that what you liked? Or you just like the way that well, he... Well, he's just a damn good writer. Mm. And the, really being able to separate what's real in mm. a book versus what's real in real life. Mm. Uh, whereas with movies, I'm not capable of doing that. That's what made Get Out so scary because like, I have been in that situation entirely Ooh. too many times. <laughs> you know, with white people who look like that. In houses <laughs> that look like plantations. <laughs> With people who have the Confederate flag on their car, you know, that's Oklahoma. So, And what it just, was it like navigating Oklahoma as a, oh young, as a young black girl? Well, we had such a, a big family, have a very big extended family, and we lived on the—I grew up in Tulsa. We lived on the north side, which is—Tulsa's pretty much separated by the railroad tracks, and mm-hmm. the blacks are on the north, the whites are on the south. And so I grew up in—around a lot of black people, and— I guess was aware of racism just kind of in the way that 
kids know that things aren't fair, mm. but not really being able to put a name to it until I got to college, I think. Do you remember seeing anything? Um, I think everything was so normalized for me that it wasn't until I was able to break away from living in Tulsa that mm. I realized just how fucked up things were. You mm. know, like, you probably should not be so used to seeing the Confederate flag and the everyday moments of racism that I experienced, especially in middle school. Middle school was a really rough year for me because I was at a most white school on the south side and Mm -hmm. there were not very many black kids but they put me in the accelerated or whatever Mm -hmm. the that class and so I was the only one (laughs) and so of course I was the only black person Mm -hmm. in that class and it was just constantly dealing with white people and their shit and it was a lot but you know my father was very pro-black you know was and was always the type to be like I will come up to school and put my foot in somebody's ass if Mm -hmm. I have to you know Mm -hmm. for fucking with my daughter so and he had to do that a couple times but so what did you know the confederate flag to be when you were growing up we knew the history behind it but it was just the conversations that happen in these classrooms especially in middle school when I was in these AP classes I remember very specifically we had social studies which was like basically talking about these things in a social context and white people frequently would just say oh well you know it's just a pride thing it's just a southern heritage thing it's just this is where we're from you know this argument is moot in Oklahoma but you know Mm -hmm. that's not Mm -hmm. something that I was able to put together at that Mm -hmm. age and I remember um, one day having a conversation about police brutality actually in the eighth grade and hearing all these white people say well if black people white kids you know they're 11 12 years old saying well, if black people didn't break the law, then they wouldn't have to worry about the police. And black people are always doing something wrong. And so if you're always doing something wrong, of course the police are going to come get you. And I just sat there and then, you know, kept hearing these comments and I just exploded. I just exploded on the teacher. I was just like, you're really going to sit here and let them say all this? Like, I'm not sitting right here. Mm-hmm. And he sent me to the principal's office. I'm like, gladly. And I called my daddy. <laughs> And my daddy came up to that school (laughs) and got me pulled out of that class Mm. and said, don't make me have to come back up here. People love you. Well, let me use I statements. I love you (laughs) you. so much because of how outspoken and unapologetic you are in your vision and perspective of the world. (sighs) Thinking about young Crystal (laughs) in the classroom processing this. And then having that same kind of reaction that you have now mm-hmm. with your reads yeah. or with all of your opinions that you have on the read, it's it's interesting to see because I'm always, you know, one of the goals of my show is like how how do people get to where they are? I guess it probably would be school then when you were able to not only have opinions but then form them, not safely, mm-hmm. but you were able to then form them. Right. I was definitely raised with this, you know, you are a black girl and that is a beautiful, amazing thing and don't let anybody shit on you for that. That's great. So when I came across racism in middle school, I was like, oh, I don't know who y'all think y'all talking to, but I'm a black girl and I'm the shit. So <laughs> I'm telling. <laughs> you know, You're talking was... to the wrong one. <laughs> So, yeah, that was I was like, y'all, y'all, y'all got me fucked up, you know. And so I would definitely push back against that. But I think I only rebelled in ways that my parents would have found acceptable. Got it. Like fighting back against racism. They're fine with that. Sexism, you know, fine with that. 
you know, trying to come out as queer mm-hmm. and have a queer identity. Wait a minute. Hold on. Well, fuck, fuck all that. Ain't nobody say all that, you know. And I was think... this also in middle school, too? No, no, no. That was in high school. Okay. That was towards the end of high school when I had this crush on a girl. Oh, God. I just thought she was so gorgeous. And I could not stop thinking about her all senior year. I was so obsessed. How did you cross paths? Uh, well, we went to the same school. Mm-hmm. She's two grades uh, under me. So she was a sophomore in my senior year, and there were all these rumors going around that I was a lesbian, I guess because I was just not being very quiet about mm. having this crush on her. But I also went to— You were to, not quiet? Well, I mean, so I told people. Oh. I was out to my friends. Okay. Um, but I had never really done anything. I just had a crush on her. Mm. And all year long, I would go up to them and be like, she's so fine. Oh, my God. She looked at me today. Oh, my God. And they would be like, bitch, please shut up. Like— <laughs> Either talk to her or don't, because she was out. But there were rumors going around senior year about me and a couple of other girls. And so one of them wrote in my yearbook, from one lesbian to another, it's been a crazy year, girl, Mm. da 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 And my parents read my yearbook. So they saw that, and they were irate. And I was like, uh, well, I mean, I think, looking back on it now, I think they knew and they just were kind mm-hmm. of terrified to see something, somebody say that. But I just kind of told them, you know, it's a rumor going around school. Don't worry about it. And then I started dating that girl like a month later. You probably, <laughs> but you got the girl in the end. No, I definitely did. Because she wrote her number in my yearbook. And I was like, oh, it's on now. Because my friends were like, listen, this is literally the, the last day of school. You will never come back. You have to talk to her. Like, you have to tell her you have a crush on her. You'll never see her again. This was before Facebook and all that. So People just disappeared. Yeah, people just did Wait, what not class keep in touch. You? Class 2000. This was oh, God. Before... Really black, before Black Planet, we still were kind oh, of like... Oh, yeah, no, Black Planet came message. along in college, and that changed the fucking <laughs> game. Did. That changed the game. Let me tell you, the computer lab used to be lit. Black people sitting up in the computer lab till 2 a.m. cracking jokes on Black Planet. <laughs> Everybody on Black Planet. (laughs) And talking about it in the computer lab. Were you a part of any of the closed groups that they would have on there? Oh, no. I don't think I was that deep into it. I was just just participating because everybody else was. I was in one called for dimes only oh my god you are such a bird i mean that with the love of beyonce no i don't even think i was i don't even think i knew that existed i was chilling in the chat room with everybody else niggas was just in there wilding man oh what a time you youngins don't know nothing about all that i have a brother who was born 14 years after i was wow and so he's yeah he's like he's a junior senior in college now and he does not remember life before the internet he does not so different recall it at all. He was five when 9-11 happened. So he's just like, 9-11, mm-hmm. I mean, we, we read about it. I'm like, what? Like, you were entering college. I, you was, were in, in college. I was in college. Right, when it, yeah. I was in college when 9-11 happened. Oh, God, my mother freaked. It's so interesting in the sense of, like, for our generation, you know, I'm, I was a class of 2001. Okay. And I remember I had just started college because it was in, yeah, so I had just started college. And I had just got over one of my first teenage tragedies, which was like Aaliyah dying oh in that God. plane accident. Yes, I had just <laughs> suffered the loss yes. of Aaliyah not yeah. even a in month August. before. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. I was devastated. My mother called me mm-hmm. and said Aaliyah died. And I said, who what? is Aunt Leah? <laughs> Aunt Leah? My brain was like, I know my mom You're did like, not just say Aaliyah. So. <laughs> you said Aunt Leah. Who is Aunt Leah, girl? Never matter. Whom? <laughs> this is one of them play aunties that I never actually, somebody you went to college with. She said no. I'm like, I know. I was, 
I was a cashier at Walmart when her last album dropped right before she mm-hmm. died. And so I remember buying it like when it came out and being obsessed. Mm-hmm. And even still today, that record sounds so good. It's just Oh, it does. So I was just devastated. I was so sad when Aaliyah died. That really, mm. that was one of the first celebrity deaths that really affected me. And I was yeah. like, wait a minute. Like, no, I really rock with this bitch. Mm-hmm. What you mean? You know? I feel like it was like our Princess Diana. Moment. Oh, God. <laughs> oh, no. You're like, oh, no. Well, I just no. feel like white people are going to be like, excuse me? <laughs> excuse me, Princess Diana? <laughs> but I feel you. I feel you. That that fucked me up. What were you, like your first thing that you were obsessed with in popular culture? Janet Jackson. <laughs> me too. <laughs> okay, so we're literally like the same. Yeah, no, we are clearly the same person. I loved Janet Jackson so much. I We did not have cable because my mama don't play that. But my grandma did. And we spent a lot of time in her house. And so my cousins would just be like, here, we'll just turn on MTV. This was back when that was all they did was mm-hmm, play videos mm-hmm. all day. Like, you poor thing. You never get to watch videos. And so I would just sit there and watch, you know, TLC and... Janet Jackson and all those 90s faves, and I was obsessed. Mm-hmm. Every single thing about Janet Jackson that I could get my hands on, I would. I would make, God, I was such a nerd. I had little hand-drawn little, like, signs that I wrote with, like, all of my faves' names. Mm-hmm. So there's was, like, a Janet and a Brandy, you know, <laughs> and just all these random singers and then myself. And every week I would rearrange them based in order of favorite. <laughs> And I was never at the top. It was like I never <laughs> liked myself more than any of them. <laughs> it's like you're on MySpace. It's top yes, eight or something. I was doing top eight before you hoes were. <laughs> I had push pins on my wall. My mother was like, what are you doing? I would rearrange them in order of like who I liked the most that week. <laughs> Monica. <laughs> like, what is wrong with me? And then Janet kind of reigned overwhelmingly. Oh, yeah. Janet was always one or two. Janet was the first time I stand for mm-hmm. anyone. I just loved. And you even wrote, I think you wrote in one of your pieces on your website, when you were talking about career or whatnot, when you realized that you couldn't be Janet Jackson. <laughs> like, okay, so I'm really not ever, hmm, all right. Um, so uh, you go to college. What do you want to be in college? Well, it was just kind of like, I'm going to college because I have to. My parents both had graduate degrees. My dad went to law school. My mother has a master's in speech pathology. And so there was no option but college. You are going. So I always thought I would I would be a lawyer okay. like my dad. Like I did, a, I did a little interview in senior year in like the newspaper. And I was like, I'm going. Oh, I was so obsessed with the practice. <laughs> Do you remember that show? Yeah. I love the e. practice. Show. Yes. ABC. And so I was mm-hmm. like, I'm going to move to Boston and be a lawyer. <laughs> no, I am not going to do those things. <laughs> but I felt like arguing is what I can do, you mm. know? And so I still do that professionally, yeah. just in a slightly different way, you know? But yeah, I I always wanted to, I guess, be someone who fought about things. And so you've used those particular skills specifically yes. for the work that you've built now, right? The platforms that you're on. Thinking about just the name of the read, mm-hmm. that show alone is something where you both are sitting together, 
speaking about the things that interest you, sometimes the things that don't interest you at all, but that you have to address anyway. I know if we don't talk about this, y'all are going to yell. And so we will just get 45 seconds. (laughs) What has it been like to navigate this particular space? It's a very public space, Mm -hmm. but also navigating it in terms of a business space with one of your close friends. What are Mm -hmm. the boundaries that you two keep? I think something that we learned to do very early on was make personal feelings personal and business decisions about business. You really have to learn how to do that separation when you're working with a friend because it's very easy to let those two things just sort of, I guess, mix around in each other. And I think what's important is to not let too much of your personal feelings affect what's best for the show, but then also, and probably more importantly, don't take a business approach to your friendship Mm -hmm. because... Our show is based on the friendship. You know, it is about the connection between the two of us, our shared experiences, the ways we're different, our views of the world and pop culture. And so the relationship is the show. So I don't want to ever approach our friendship with each other as though it's like a contractual mm-hmm. thing, you know? Mm-hmm. But, you know, the, the love is so real. And there also is that, you know, the intimate space of specifically since your friendship is a real thing. Yeah. And it's something that you two shared before you even came to this right. to this space. That right. Then you bring it there and then the listener then becomes the next layer of the friendship, right? Yeah. Like they believe that they are your friends. Oh, and we have been hearing that since the show started. People are like, I just want y'all to know I play this show and I sit there and talk right back to y'all like I'm part of the conversation. <laughs> I just be chiming right on in with my opinion to be like, that's right, girl. <laughs> I'm like, I love that. You know, I love that people feel like they are sitting down listening to their cousins talk about what happened that week or whatever. You know, mm. I, I think that sense of familiarity is so dope. It it feels good to know that there are so many other black people who get it, mm. who see where we're coming from. And how much do you listen to your audiences? feedback, you know, because I know they're constantly mm-hmm. in conversation with you, whether you're looking at the mentions or not, but <laughs> they're constantly in conversation. You know, like I've, I've even seen things where it's like if the read is like five minutes late, oh, Lord. they are like on you, like, where is it? Where is it? What's going oh, on? Where's the episode? I need my fix. A few weeks ago, we announced the show will be a day late next week. The next Thursday came <laughs> by like 930. People were like, excuse you, bitches. <laughs> Where is my fucking show? I'm like, I'm a logo. And you're also like, first of all, the show is free. So take it down a notch. <laughs> you know what? I really feel like I'm at the point where I don't, if I respond to people, it's going to be perceived as me being a bitch or being negative mm. or why won't you just be happy that somebody wants to listen to your show? So to avoid all that, I will just log off until the fucking show is ready. I'm not finna sit there and have y'all cuss me out all day, which I did. You know, I did finally log on once the show was up and then I checked my mentions and I'm like, y'all have been cussing me out all day. Seriously? <laughs> Man, but I... You know, so it's that part of it, and then it's the thank you so much mm-hmm. for for listening and for g- caring that much. Like you could you could not curse yeah. me out, but yeah. thank you for identifying so much with the show that you're like, give me my shit. One of the things that I I love about the show is the the listener letter. Mm-hmm. Sometimes when I don't have time, I have to fast forward to the middle part because I gotta get to the read. Like there's no <laughs> way that I can get through the week without reading the read, listening oh to the my read. God, I love but it. you know, I how do you navigate giving people advice? I mean, we started off saying, first of all, we are not professionals. If you need real help, 
contact someone licensed and qualified. We are not that. We Which are is comedians. another thing I love about you two <laughs> is that you both are very open about talking about your need for therapy. Your yes. need, you know, like take care of yourself in this yes. space. Like mental health care is like necessary. Yeah. So I love that that you we all do absolutely that. Absolutely talk about mental health and how important it is to take care of yourself and yeah, see a therapist because there's a lot going on and you know, life gets rough sometimes and get the help you need. But you know, if you have a question about whether to break up with your boyfriend, I could probably help you with that. <laughs> Because I know a lot about that, you know, that sort of thing. So I'm just honest about the things that I've gone through and the perspective that I have. So if you're saying, you know, I like this guy so much and he texts me sometimes and, and then we sleep together every now and then, but it just feels like he won't really take me out or whatever, I can say, sweetheart, in 2005 I was you and I'm going to tell you now. To just leave him alone. If he want, if he was interested in you, he would be reciprocating your energy. He's not. He's dragging you along for sex or whatever else. Just cut it off and find somebody else. There are a million, billion men out here. There are so many potential partners out here. And you're young. Have fun. Like, this is what that time is for, you know? So I think a large part of it is me wishing that I could kind of go back and talk to myself and be like, girl, get your <laughs> shit together. One of the pieces of what makes the show so great, too, is that it's two black creatives sitting in a space sharing ideas. It seems so simple, but it's not a space that when you were starting in this particular landscape in podcasting, which is very white, very male dominated, yeah, yeah. that had anything there. And so you both kind of created a blueprint for other people, including myself, including another round, including so many others who have come into the podcasting space as black folk to be able to share their ideas and thoughts and opinions. Is that something that you Well, think when of? you say it like that, Jenny, <laughs> damn. <laughs> All these bitches is my sons. <laughs> that was a... <laughs> Well, it's kind of like, it's like that moment where Beyonce, came, you know, Beyonce came in and she just like, you know, I went away and I had a baby. And, but you all, you bet you need to know like, the reason why you are here. No, but it's not, it's not in I'm that, flattered. I don't, That's like, I'm not framing it in that kind of These like are a, shows I love. Like, yeah. I love your show. I love Another Round. I love, I love that there is so much more now than mm -hmm. when we started. I love that there are so many different shows and people are like buying $30 mics off Amazon and doing shows at home in the closet. You know, like the, there's so much now and you get to hear from so many different voices, mm -hmm. which is what I think podcasting exactly needed. Mm -hmm. So if we help to open the door for that, I'm, I'm just honored to have been a part of it. What do you love the most about The Read? I love that we have a space where we can freely talk through our black queer lens about the way we see this world, specifically America and in these times. If we were on any other platform, we would be censored in some way or we would have to change the message in some way. I love that we get to be brutally honest and totally direct and say things exactly the way we see them. We get to talk about things openly, you know, police brutality and all the things that black people have been going through specifically over the past few years, it's like, and, and we have total control over that. Mm -hmm. No one tells us what we can or can't say. Nothing's edited out of the show that we don't want edited out. And, and we have the ability to do that and still have advertisers. Mm -hmm. And that, <laughs> that is yeah. the true blessing. Mm -hmm. That is the true blessing. So I love that we are able to just be honest and real. I feel like that's what 
I feel like that's what black people are looking for. Like, you know, you can listen to the news or shows or whatever all day, but it's something about listening to people who know what it's like to grow up the way you did and who move through this world and are seen the way you are Mm. that makes listening to things from their perspective feel that much more comfortable. So I just love that we're able to connect with people in that way. It feels really good. Yeah, one of the things that interests me is that within the time span and the run of your show— A lot of black Americans were in the process of becoming politicized, specifically young black Americans. And, you know, your reads could function as a sort of like a time lapse of the emotional response of young black Americans to the news cycles of Trayvon Martin, Eric Gardner. Sandra Bland, Sandra Bland and so yeah, many other victims of right. police brutality. How do you emotionally handle um, speaking about these issues? You know, not just as Crystal on air, but the person that is a private citizen that mm-hmm. is grappling with these cyclical issues of trauma. <sighs> Marijuana helps. I get high because it's just like real life is a lot. It is. It's entirely too much. And paying attention to the news, being woke, I say this all the time, I don't blame anybody who chooses to stay ignorant about what's going on. I mean, I blame you because you could be doing so much better. But Mm -hmm. at the same time, I don't because I feel like I was a lot less stressed before I really started paying attention to what was going on in the world. And so I do have a therapist. I talk about, you know, those issues and things that stress me out. I talk with friends about, you know, what's going on. But Really, I use the show as a big emotional outlet and being able to read comments from people and engage with people online who are like, oh, my God, I've been wanting somebody to say this. I played this for my cousin who didn't get it and now she does and that sort of thing, you know. Being able to kind of work through it in that way helps. But what I can't do anymore is just like the constant online Every day, you know, just nonstop mm-hmm. news cycle. Mm-hmm. I have to cut it off. I cannot be plugged in all day. I cannot get push alerts for every time mm-hmm. Donald Trump does something. You know, I have to take a break. I cannot do it. And has that been has it been even that much more motivating in this particular political landscape with the Trump administration to to create and to continue creating? Is, yeah, has that until, been motivating for you? you? Know, until Daddy Russia comes and shuts all this down. <laughs> <laughs> no more podcasting for you. Absolutely. You know, it's like, uh, it's my goal to keep my foot on Donald Trump's neck. You know, Maxine Waters is my inspiration. (laughs) Every week, I ought to say at least one thing that this administration has done that is fucking insane. And Barack Obama would have been impeached Mm -hmm. immediately for. Mm -hmm. And because every week there's like at least four. (laughs) So I can at least mention one. You know, I can I can at least talk about. The insanity of of what America is going through and the fact that the Republican Party is basically ignoring it because they're able to slide in all the shitty judges and legislation that they want to while everybody is freaking out over this Trump thing. And so seeing the GOP deliberately choose party over country Mm. and not ever thinking that that day would come, I think... At my in at my core, I always believed white people love America more than anything. Mm. <laughs> but I think white people love white privilege more than anything. Mm. And so to just watch it all unfold like this, it feels like I have a duty to to talk about it. Okay. Now we need to talk about Beyonce. Oh well. <laughs> let me have some water. <laughs> Do you remember the first time you saw her? Not in person, I mean just the image. No, no, no. Me too. Yeah. No, no, no. With Wyclef. I think it was a live performance. 
And I liked Destiny's Child, like followed their career really heavy from, you know, the early days. But I remember when they, you know, they did the last album and I thought, okay, you know, I don't really know if a solo career, like I knew they were all going to, you know, Mm. do their own thing. But I was like, I don't know if I'm going to love them, you know, as much individually as I did together. And then came, you know, crazy in love. And I was like, oh, no, I'll be fine. (laughs) I'm good. (laughs) It's been pretty much nonstop. (sighs) It's been nonstop ever since with me and being. It's been like since 95. I, I don't. I don't even want to be creepy right now. I just love her <laughs> so much. Janet. So what was it like? I love her just as much. No, I. Get but then it. the way that you express your love for her enables me to express mine even more. <laughs> so that's what I love about it so much. But what was that? You know, when self title was when released in twenty when it shocked the world. <laughs> and that world and Beyonce stopped. posted your reaction video. Oh my god! On, on Facebook. Facebook. Wait a minute. Wait. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I think Beyonce just released an album on iTunes. <gasps> What? Oh my god. Oh my god. Whoa! Whoa! Oh my god. Oh my god. Oh my god. Oh my god. Oh my god, guys. Crystal is about to have a meltdown. No, hold on. I'm about to tweet the link. I'm about to tweet it. Oh my god. 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 What did it feel like to be seen by the queen? It was pivotal. It was life-changing. I honestly felt renewed. I was at work, actually, when it happened. I was an executive assistant at MTV Mm. for years. And I was at work on Facebook and saw Beyonce post that video. And I was like, "Uh, so when did I start following a fake Beyonce page? This is not like me. (laughs) (laughs) So I clicked on it thinking, who the hell did I follow? And I see her little blue verified check mark. And I was like, excuse me? (laughs) So then I'm like refreshing it thinking she's going to delete it, right? (laughs) (laughs) I scrolled down and Beyonce really posted this video with the caption of, y'all are the best, love you, which Beyonce said she loved me. I just want to make sure everybody knows that. Like I have a screenshot of it if you don't believe me. I started to scream, and so my coworkers were like, what the hell is wrong with you? And I said, Beyonce just put me on her Facebook. And I think I started to cry oh. <laughs> a little bit, not too much, but I was just like, this is happening to me, this is happening to me. And then people started to see it on Twitter, and my phone started blowing up. Everybody was like, bitch, are you serious? It was like, it was a real moment for me. It was... I don't know, man. I just feel like Beyonce has meant so much to me over the years. You know, the growth with her artistry and just seeing all the things she's done and how brilliant she is. I truly think she's underrated, but she has meant so much in my life and has inspired me so much as a person and as a creative. I just feel like there is no there are no words that I could even give you to adequately express the way I feel about her as an artist. Like she's just phenomenal she's literally everything so i feel literally all the same feelings yeah no i know you do i know you do and so when she posted that video i was just like the queen has seen my face my existence has been affirmed i may die now but also i'm fine with never meeting her i feel like she's probably really i feel that way too she's really over the general public probably and i don't blame her i get it so i'm i'm actually fine with never meeting her she's done enough my favorite thing to do when i am in bed with the ipad is to 
Google like old Beyonce videos, like oh, old yeah. interviews when Fun. she used to do mm-hmm. interviews. Oh yes, because when she was younger, she would. I remember she was doing some interview with like CBS Everything. or 60 Minutes, and she was and she was just reading all of her accolades like to the interviewer. <laughs> yeah. She basically was like, "I am actually the youngest and the first Black woman to be honored by ASCAP." Yeah. And she like, you know, this is like you know crazy and love Beyonce, yeah. where she was just like, "I just need you guys to know my greatness because you're not going to say it." <laughs> But, like, I understood what she was doing, right? Yeah. Like, there's this thing of, like, she had to name it all because they were not calling her the queen yet, right? right? Like, she knew her greatness. She knew what she was contributing to the culture. And she was like, I need you to know, mm-hmm. as I'm sitting down with you journalists, that mm-hmm. these are all of my credits. Yes. And it's still underrated <laughs> to I this know. day. But at this point, she doesn't have to list the credits because she has a whole fucking yep. army <laughs> that will do it for her. <laughs> Myself included. It's just undeniable at this point. Nobody's arguing about it. White people are freely referring to her as Queen Bee. Like, it's over. It is. Dominance. Where were you when the when the photos of Sir and Rumi? In the bed, and I had almost gone to sleep, and a little spirit said, check Instagram. <laughs> and that sneaky girl. <laughs> Beyonce grew two whole ass people inside her body. And it's also so great, too, because you just know that this is something that she's really wanted. She's always wanted to be a mom. Right. She's wanted to have these children. She fought to have these kids. Yeah, hearing about, Mm -hmm. you know, the losses in the context of self-titled and Lemonade and 444 is just like it makes the birth of these kids seem like even that much more special. And that's why especially I have I think people have expected me to be a lot more in her business. And I'm like. Mother is growing people, Mm -hmm. you know, let her rest. And whenever she's ready to send pictures of the kids, we will get them. I am not going to press Beyonce. Mm -hmm. I have learned that Beyonce does things in her own time when she's good and damn ready. And you will be ready to receive it when it is released. You will. You will be ready. She knows when it's coming. You just sit down and wait for it. You just mentioned a seat at the table, Mm -hmm. lemonade and 444. Do you believe that they're in conversation with each other? Uh, not entirely. I think probably a seat at the table more divorced from them than the other two. But uh, when I listen to self-titled, especially, I think mm. that a lot of those lyrics reflect what's going on in 444, you know, feeling the the pain of of things changing after having a children or suspecting your husband of infidelity and that sort of thing, those kind of themes that are reflected throughout self-titled. But then Lemonade, I think, was just so damn blatant with it mm-hmm. that people were, you, you could not <laughs> ignore it. She was straight up saying, uh, nobody would be returning your phone calls if you weren't married to me. What's up? Bow down, nigga. Who the fuck do you think I am? Like, mm-hmm. the whole damn globe knows I'm Beyonce and you out here treating me like I'm just any old damn bitch. Are you crazy? Did you too feel like there was like a divorce thing coming? Like, the, the Ab- right after it so was, after it sorry. <laughs> After sorry, I thought Beyonce. I thought the next scene was gonna be like Beyonce and her badass black woman lawyer being like, "I'm taking half. Give me that." You know, like I thought if she was gonna be signing papers. Lemonade confused the fuck did, out of me once did. she started the forgiveness shit. I was like, "Wait a minute, how do we get here?" It took me a long time to accept that piece of it. Yeah, it's not me that too. I wanted her to stay angry or to be mad, or but there's something about for me. It felt like it was such a quick shift in some way. Right. But it was like this is her life. Right. So in her life, it wasn't a quick shift. She's finally ready to share the entire story of it all. You yeah, know? you know, and this was some time after the elevator incident, exactly. which I was always on Solange's side for, by the way. Yeah. And figured he had every piece of that ass whooping coming to him. So I can't fathom being in her position. 
you know, I don't have some lifelong relationship where, you know, we mm-hmm. have everything tied together and kids and all that with somebody. Yeah. So, no, of course, I don't know what it's like to forgive someone who's done this to me. Like, because I don't get that. Far. I don't get that far. You cheat on me. I'm leaving you. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't have that connection with somebody. Mm-hmm. So it took me a while to really understand, like, Beyonce has a totally different uh, experience of relationships than you do. Um, specifically this one. So, like, if she was able to forgive her man and then, again, through watching Lemonade, specifically Sandcastles, I think Beyonce made it clear that she left, first of all, and that he humbled himself and changed in order to get her back. Mm. And I felt like that was a big part of the message of Lemonade that people did not get. Mm. I think a lot of it was just, oh, he cheated and Beyonce went back to him anyway and now she's having more of his kids. And I'm like, I think you all are missing the part where... Yes, this man did something wrong, but this man also changed his behavior Mm. in order to get this woman back. You know, it wasn't just I'm still going to be tolerating the same bullshit you've been doing, you know. And I think that 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 demand of, you know, your partner must be different, you Mm. know, go to therapy, which is something Jay-Z mentioned on 444, having a therapist. And I was like, thank you, God. Maybe now you will influence some of these young men to talk to somebody about the things they're going through. That's what's so exciting about his album, listening to it was like this. And then also having the footnotes and the videos that are attached to it is that you have these men talking specifically, I think, to young men about, and not even just young men, but just black men about how to be better and how to show up and how to evolve and grow. And despite, you know, the women that you're engaged with growing and adapting and maturing Mm -hmm. faster than you, that, that, you need to step up and which is just you think about the age difference and you just roll your eyes even harder like seriously are you fucking kidding Ugh, men and the excuse they'll the take t- anyone the title track is so difficult for me to listen mm. to but it's also my favorite because i think he's making it clear well he says and he addresses throughout the song you know having or throughout the album having to kill off the old version of himself and owing it to that generation who grew up on his music to say, this is what I've had to do in order to grow the hell up. Like, I think that's what mm-hmm. a big part of what he's trying to to say specifically to young black men in this record. And so, you know, just saying I'm, this song is overdue. I do not deserve you. That line in particular, I think I've replayed over and over. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't deserve you. You're right. You don't. You do not deserve the grace of Beyonce. But she has extended it to you, so I guess I will, too. (laughs) I guess I will, too. (laughs) When I was like, Beyonce forgave him, so I guess he's okay, but... mm. So, what is your aspiration in life? (laughs) My aspiration in life is to be happy. (laughs) Da-da-da. But seriously, what is your aspiration in life? Yeah, no. No, I just had to I had to have a moment with you. No, and I loved every second. <laughs> you know, I think I want I want to empower people, specifically black women, to feel like whole people all by themselves and to know that their dreams and goals and aspirations are important and deserve to take priority in their lives. And I want them to, I don't know. I think I I want 
I want the girls coming up now to see somebody like me and say, oh, I can push back when white people say something racist around me. Or I can, you know, cuss out this administration for whatever. Or I can push back against my parents for being homophobic, transphobic, mm-hmm. you know, having mm-hmm. being ignorant in whatever ways. I can do that, you know, like maybe not with as many curse words as she used, but... You know, there's a black girl speaking up about these things that I care about, too. And so being that image, I guess, or or being that person that people get that from means a lot to me. It's I think, yeah, that's part of my overall goal is just to be able to reach people in that way, specifically black women, because I feel like we lack being told that Mm -hmm. the most. Mm -hmm. You know, there's so much of this. Why don't you have a man? Why don't you have kids by a certain age? It's like. Can I be me? Can I ha- can I can I have a career? Can I have aspirations? Can I have things I want to do with myself? Like, do I have to to follow whatever rule you wanted me to? Do I have to tolerate whatever bullshit from these people? Like, no, I can just be me and focus on myself and live my life. I can do that. And I'm so glad that you're doing that Thank and that you, so you are much. giving so many of us so much life oh, from, girl. of course, the Beyonce stuff, but I think more importantly, <laughs> mainly the Beyonce stuff, <laughs> but, you know, on a footnote, <laughs> just be real about it for <laughs> also, but no, but for real though, but for, you know, I think that what you do for me is that you enable me to own my outrage, my anger, my fandom, my voice, all those things. Like, I've sent you privately. I've sent you emails just to thank you for the things that you spoke up on that I did not have energy to speak on that week. And so I think that you consistently do that for thousands of people who are listening. And so I just want to thank you for that and thank you for being Thank you. On my podcast. I try. I have a queen of podcasts on my podcast. No, you are everything. This lineup, this first season, I'm like, how you just come right out the gate with legends? What? (laughs) So to even be on is my honor. Thank you so much for having me, Janet. This is so fun. You're one of the blueprints. Oh, girl. Well, I will take it. Thank you. If you've enjoyed our show, please subscribe to it and rate it on Apple Podcast. It really helps us elevate the show and gets more people listening to us and obviously ranking us because we want to be your fave. So go do it. Now here's Lena Dunham, my executive producer, to give you a little hint about next week's guest. Complex, but you can't argue that she's not the mother to end all mothers. That's next week on Never Before. Never Before is a product of Pineapple Street Media and Lenny Letter. It was produced by Jenna Weiss-Berman, Ricky Novetsky, Josh Gwynn, Liz Watson, and Barry Finkel. Special thanks to Max Linsky and Ben Cooley. Our music is by Hans Del Sue. Thanks so much for listening. We're back next week.